Well, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, have you all heard of the 10,000 hour rule? I don't know if that rings a bell, but some people argue that to become expert level at something, you have to do that thing or practice that thing for at least 10,000 hours. Right? So if you want to be a concert level pianist or play an instrument at an expert level, you have to play and practice for 10,000 hours. Well, I did the math this afternoon, and I've been married for well over 150,000 hours, uh, so I think I'm an expert in marriage. So, yeah, don't ask her. So, one thing I think I've learned in all those hours, or I hope I've learned, is that if you wait for romance to be spontaneous in your marriage, it's not always going to work out, and things are going to look bleak at times. You actually have to plan to spend time together. You have to be intentional about dating your spouse, right? Your relationship simply is not the same as it is when you were newlyweds, right? You're not always going to be in a season where romance comes easily. So there are times you have to cultivate it. You have to choose romance, and you have to choose to develop your relationship. And I see my wife out there listening, and right after the service, she's going to remind me that I need to get some date nights cultivated. But my point is that romance is a thing to be cultivated in a relationship. And just because it's not spontaneous does not mean it's not good. And so it seems to me that we should take the same attitude when it comes to gratitude. Right? There's a misconception that thankfulness and gratitude has to be spontaneous. Right? That it has to be like a child opening an unexpected gift and opens it jubilantly and throws the wrapping paper around and is just full of praise and thanksgiving because of that gift. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but we're not realistically going to be joyfully thankful every day. There are going to be days when we don't feel great. There will be days when circumstances are difficult. And yet it's important to cultivate gratitude even on these days. Gratitude is a choice. We can choose to be grateful. We can practice gratitude even on difficult days because when we learn to be thankful for even the small things in life, then we'll begin to truly appreciate the great things. There's an old proverb that says, who does not thank for little will not thank for much. And so we're challenged to learn to be thankful even for the smallest blessings in life, even when it's difficult to be thankful. We cultivate gratitude like a gardener cultivates a seedling into a plant. And it's important to cultivate gratitude because gratitude puts us right with God. It orders a right relationship between us and God. And it orders our relationships with one another. So if we're not grateful, I think it's impossible to truly worship God. Because gratitude goes beyond labeling everything in life as mine or thine. Rather, gratitude teaches us that all in life is a gift. Everything that we have, we have out of God's grace. Now, in the Lutheran tradition, 
We often learn to memorize the words of Martin Luther, who wrote in his small catechism, I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes and ears, and all my members, my reason, my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food, drink, house, home, wife and child, land, animals, and all I have. And he richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. And all of this he does out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. And for this, it's my duty to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. But see, everything we receive in life is a gift. From the most basic thing we rarely think about, like the shoes we're wearing right now, all the way up to the things we do think about, like our spouse, our children, our grandchildren. Right? All of these are given to us as pure, undeserved gifts. And when we recognize this, then we learn to recognize God as our caring Father. And more than that, we learn that we ourselves are not God, that we depend on Him. We don't receive the graces of God because we've earned them. We didn't earn them but rather because God our Father provides out of his love. And because God provides, we can turn to him, love him, praise him, and give him thanks. And that's the heart of our true worship. But choosing to be grateful, as much as it teaches us to be in right relationship with God, it also helps us to love our neighbors. When we're grateful for the gifts of God, we begin not to see everyone as competition or as annoyances, Instead, when we're grateful, we can learn to receive even our neighbors themselves as gifts. When we begin to see the people around us as gifts and be thankful for them, we learn to love them for who God has made them to be. Maybe at some point or another, you've witnessed a household with families that are not thankful for one another. They're not thankful to share a home. They're not thankful to be a family. And they live together in a kind of contentious flophouse. They bicker and fight and insult each other. And members of such households, they just look out for themselves and see everyone else as someone who gets in their way. Right? It's a house without love. It's a home without love because there's no gratitude. Gratitude and love follow each other. And so when we learn to be grateful for those around us, then we truly learn to love them. And so being thankful is important. It's important living our life for God and living it well as God was ha would have us to live it. And so because I believe that gratitude is vital to understanding ourselves as God's people, tonight I'd like to give you three concrete steps, or at least three ideas, to help you cultivate gratitude in your life. So the first thing I would like to suggest to you to cultivate gratitude in your life is to eat meals with others as frequently as possible. To take seriously eating together. So a few years ago, The Atlantic magazine published a story about the fact that American families no longer eat together. The story says, sadly, Americans rarely eat together anymore. In fact, the average American eats one in every five meals in his or her car one in four Americans eats at least one fast food meal every single day alone. 
and the majority of American families report eating a single meal together less than five days a week. And then the story goes on to talk about how children who eat dinner with their families are healthier, how they have better academic performance, they're less likely to use drugs and alcohol, and that they report being emotionally closer to their families. And it makes sense. Many of us have warm memories about meals together as a family. We have warm memories of Thanksgiving meals together. Right? We can still taste familiar dishes, the turkey, the stuffing, the sweet potatoes, the cranberry relish, the green bean casserole, the pumpkin pie. If we try, we can see the smiling and laughing faces of the loved ones who sat around the table with us, even those who were no longer with us. We can remember the same stories and jokes we tend to tell over and over at occasions like Thanksgiving. But it seems to me that we're created to cherish moments like these. God has put something in us to cherish, to grow, and to enjoy eating meals together and most especially feasting together on joyous occasions. There's something about eating together and feasting together that makes us happier, healthier. And perhaps the joy and wellness we gain from eating with others is in fact a foretaste of what's to come in heaven, right? The Bible talks about this all the time. Even our Old Testament reading tonight from the book of Joel talks about our future salvation. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, shall praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. The 23rd Psalm that you know does this as well. Although we usually remember that Psalm for its first metaphor, the Lord is my shepherd, there's also this imagery of feasting and eating together. Right? You prepare a table for me before my enemies, my cup overflows. When we read the Gospels, Jesus is always eating Right? He's even called a glutton because he's always eating or he's heading to some meal or another. And in fact, the high point of the Gospels is the meal Jesus shares with his disciples on the night in which he's betrayed. And together now, as a church, right, as Christians, we feast in holy communion with the presence of Jesus as a promise for that feast that we will share together for eternity. And it's no coincidence that in many Christian traditions, Holy Communion is, in fact, called the Eucharist, a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. And at the meal of communion, we offer up thanksgiving for the gifts of God given to us through Christ. But all of that thanksgiving happens at a table. It's at the Lord's table where he comes to meet us at communion. But it's no coincidence that the Lord has chosen a meal as the means by which he comes to us. He has hardwired us to eat together, to feast together. And at meals, two things happen. At a meal, we acknowledge first that food comes to us out of God's providence. Right? A lot has to happen for food to appear on our tables. And nearly all of what happens is out of our control. And so we're called to give thanks for our daily bread because we can maybe put seed in the ground, but we cannot make it grow. We cannot provide the rain and the sunlight that will bring forth the grain needed to make bread. We have little control over the many hands, the many farmers who will harvest that grain, the many processes that will turn it into flour and then into bread. Right? God, through his providence, makes this happen on our behalf. But when we sit at a meal with others and eat, 
together we consider our food. Right? And together we're not distracted by a TV screen or by our phones. And we begin to pay attention. And we're paying attention to God's generosity to us. The second thing that happens at a meal we share with others at a table is that we learn to listen. Right? The person sharing food next to us isn't equal. They're friends. We see this in the Gospels. This is a scandal in the Gospels. Right? Jesus sits down and eats with those people who were considered the lowest of society. But in doing so, Jesus was communicating his willingness to listen, to welcome, and to accept. Right? When we listen to people and hear their stories, and we begin to understand them as individuals, we begin to understand how that person is, in fact, a gift to us. And if they're a gift to us, we learn to be grateful for them. The Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes of table fellowship among Christians and Christians eating together. And he says, this fellowship acknowledges that all earthly gifts are given to us for Christ's sake. As this whole world is sustained only for the sake of Jesus, his word and his message, he is the true bread of life. He is not only the giver, but the gift itself. For those, who say, for those who sake all earthly gifts exist, only because the message concerning Jesus must still go forth and find believers, and because our task is not yet perfected. So God in his patience continues to sustain us with his good gifts. Simply put then, when we eat at a table together, we gather together in remembrance of all that God does for us through Christ. We then see in one another. We see the blessings of God. We see the very image of God in one another. And we see that Christ has made that image perfect. And so in order to cultivate gratitude, let us take opportunities to eat with one another, to cherish one another at our tables, to welcome those we might not otherwise welcome to our tables, and be grateful for the gifts that God has given to us. So the second thing I would suggest to you is to become very aware of how and when you are tempted to complain. Complaining and murmuring and grumbling are absolutely considered sinful in the Bible. Right? We need to go no further than to consider the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness for a whole generation because they complained. Where were their words of thanks for being delivered out of captivity? Where were the praises to God who always provided their needs? Well, they were far too often absent. And they were a people who complained. Complaining and offering critiques is very often just a sign of ingratitude for not being thankful. Now, there are times when complaints are true. Right? We can rightly criticize something when it's wrong. But so often, complaining happens because we haven't considered first what we ought to be grateful for. If, for instance, there's something in your church congregation to complain about, perhaps we should at least think about things that are connected to what we want to complain about and first give thanks. Be grateful for the congregations, for the people in our congregations, for our communities. Right, we could all come up with a thousand examples of things 
that we do complain about or would like to complain about because we're all guilty in this regard. Right? But I suggest to you that gratitude and affirming one another, they're in short supply in our world. Right? It's easy to complain to one another and about one another, but how often do you hear kind words of thankfulness and affirmation? Complaining's everywhere. Right? We complain about decline of church attendance on Sunday morning, or we might complain about you know, no one willing to serve in leadership in our congregations, and that's all fair, but how would the culture of our places change if we approached one another in our congregations with gratitude and affirmation? Would this solve all our problems? Well, probably not. But when we hold off on complaining in favor of being grateful, we recognize something very important. We recognize that God is actively involved in our congregations. And that's the problem with ingratitude and constant complaining. It does not take seriously God's active love and care for us. Even in the small victories, the small gifts, the small encouragements, we can learn to recognize God. The Israelites in the desert should have recognized God was leading them. But instead, they fell into that all-too-easy cycle of complaining. So take time to see how God is active by naming the small gifts in our congregations. And we'll begin to open ourselves up to see how God is using our congregations for bigger purposes. In council meetings, board meetings, committee meetings, in Bible studies, whatever it is you do in the life of the church, take a moment to thank someone. Take a moment to send out a thank you note for someone who offered kindness to you. But most of all, take time to thank God for the community he has given you. Finally, the third suggestion I have for you to cultivate gratitude is to accept the present day as a gift. Live in the present. This is what Christ is getting at in our gospel lesson this evening. He says, do not worry saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? For that's what the Gentiles who strive for all these things say. Indeed, your Heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. When you obsess and worry about the future, it's impossible for you to be thankful for what you have now. I know it's a cliche to say, count your blessings, but it's a cliche because it's true. Count your blessings as they stand today before you begin to worry about tomorrow. One of my favorite philosophers says, to heck with the future. The future is a man-eating idol. And what he means is that we're so often willing to sell out our souls for an imagined better future. Rarely, however, do we consider what we have to be thankful for today. When the stresses of the future begin to affect you, take time to be thankful for what you have now. Remember how God has fed you. He's clothed you, protected you. He's given you so many good things. Consider all of that before you begin to fret about the future. When you can do this, you'll begin to walk with gratitude in your heart. However you cultivate gratitude in your life, take time to give God thanks. That, of course, is what this service is all about, what Thanksgiving is all about. Taking that time to recalibrate, to make sure that you are giving God thanks. So I want to close with a part of a poem from a 17th century poet and preacher named George Herbert. 
who in his poem called Gratitude, wrote, Thou hast given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart. Not thankful when it pleaseth me, as if thy blessings had spare days, but such a heart whose pulse may be thy praise. Well, may this be our prayer also. May our hearts beat with thankfulness wherever we go. Amen.